David Kazai, we've got David here with us. And um, some of you know Cherie and Joel. Um, some of you may know David from serving here in town uh, at a couple of churches around here. And, and so um, David moved off. And, and, um, but y'all may know him from ministry. Um, I know this brother as um, my roommate in college. <laughs> and so please don't ask him any questions afterwards. We'll just dismiss him straight on out to eat. Don't ask him anything. Um, but David loves Jesus. Um, David has given his life to serving in ministry. We don't just open up the pulpit at Safe Haven to just anybody. Uh, we're very careful about that. And um, this man has exposited the text um, in different countries, <laughs> and it is a blessing for us to have David with us today. And so he's going to uh, share with us our, our continuing our journey through Hebrews. Um, so I'm going to pray for David. No, number one, welcome him, David. We're glad you're here. Um, it's an honor to have you, brother. Let me pray, and let's go. So, Lord, I, I think, I mean, so many thoughts flood through my head. I mean, running through the streets of Mobile trying to chase mm. this man, um, mm. <laughs> working out, um, uh, li- sitting in our living room, um, singing songs together, mm. um, um, seeing how you have used him in gospel ministry, not only here in the U.S., but abroad and now back in the U.S., and um, how his life has impacted my life. Mm. And, and so, Lord Jesus, if you would be gracious today through your text, move David aside. Um, speak beyond the voice of David. Mm-hmm. And um, if you would, Holy Spirit, make us see Jesus more clearly. Mm-hmm. Uh, make us worship Jesus more clearly, love Jesus more clearly, um, and walk mm-hmm. out of here exalting Jesus more clearly. Jesus, be the centerpiece. Let it all be about you today. Um, through David, it's your precious name. We pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Well, hey, good morning, Safe Heaven Church. It is a delight to be here. It's a joy, and uh, it's an honor uh, to be able to, to stand behind uh, the sacred desk here. I know, as Troy just communicated, this is not uh, a light invitation. Uh, it guards it very well. What Troy did not tell you is that. Uh, it is a universal truth that the week after Easter is the least attended Sunday of all. And so really what they were doing as elders were saying, who can we bring in here if they uh, foul ball, if they foul it off, it won't matter that much anyway. So, Troy, I'm, I'm glad to be that guy. Thanks for that invitation. There are plenty of stories, and uh, I will hang around just for uh, your pleasure. If you want to know some things about Troy from college days, I, I would love to uh, divulge anything you ask. But... Uh, no, it is a joy. It's a joy to be here. And um, as Troy was just communicating some things about uh, our interaction throughout the years, yeah, I met this brother uh, last millennium, man. That's, that's crazy. One of the things that um, our family knows Troy Nicholson as is the guy who built our dinner table. Do y'all know he does that kind of stuff? Paints walls, building tables? And so we're coming here today and say, hey, you know, Troy and his family, if you don't remember, Troy's the guy who built our dinner table. And everyone's like, yeah. And so I thought how fitting it is that, Troy, what you do for us on a daily basis, your, your, your act of service for us in, in feeding us, helping facilitate the feeding, is exactly what you do here week by week along with the, the team of elders and staff that God's brought here. And it's beautiful. It is an honor to be here. I I have followed the story of Safe Haven since since inception. Troy asked me to preach in 2009. This is the second time he's asked me back. So I don't know if there's like a statute of limitations. And so just 
but it's a joy to be back. But, but where the Lord has had us in different states and countries, it has been, it's, it's been a joy to follow the act of God in the life of this body. And so from a distance, uh, our family, my wife, Katie, and our six kiddos in the back back there. So uh, uh, we have followed the story of what God is writing here at Safe Haven. And so I just want you to know it's a joy to be here. And most of all, it's a joy to open this book, right? This book is the only book in the world that when we read it, it reads us, right? And I'm honored that I get to jump in right in the sermonic conversation that God has dialed up for you all through the book of Hebrews, one of my favorite books. And so, if you will, we got a, a large portion of text that's going to be on the screen if you want to follow along. Two whole chapters here, about 41 verses. And I debated on whether or not to read the entire text, but I thought, you know, it's probably safest to let the text speak for itself, especially when we won't have time to actually hit on all of what could be hit on in these two chapters. So would you just read the text with me? Uh, And there are going to be a few bolded portions. I want you to actually vocalize those portions with me, okay? Because it's a long text. I don't want us to get lost here on what the Lord does. So Hebrews chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. This is ESV, right? Okay, so I'm going to go here. You guys go scream. Okay, all right. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God met Abraham returning from the slaughter of kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he's also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, talking about Melchizedek, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Verse 11, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, 
The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. There you go. You're getting it. There you go. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like these high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Chapter 8. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it's necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises." For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue my covenant, and I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord." This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, but they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray one more time. Father in heaven, it is right, it is right to let your word speak. And we can say amen and go home. Because your word is the only word that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we ask now in these next few moments that you would come as a loving Father who disciplines us for our good and you would use this word like a scalpel and you would discern the thoughts and intents of our hearts. We're open before you anyway. So Lord, would you come and do your work in us for your glory, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Well, amen. Well, hey, if you want a book for Tyler... Let me suggest one. And I'm sure it's one he already owns. 
Uh, it's one that we give out during child dedication time to parents as they are seeking to shepherd their kids, to know the Lord. And you probably all have a copy of this at your house. It's the Jesus Storybook Bible. I remember giving this to a guy recently, and he told me later, a few weeks after he got it for their child dedication, new believer, he said, we would read it to our girls, put them to bed, and then my wife and I, we would get back on the couch and open this book and start reading it. Y'all know what I'm talking about, Jesus Storybook Bible? All right, all right, that's a good book. If you remember that book, here's the introduction to that book. It says now, talking about the Bible, it says now some people think the Bible is a book of rules, telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have heroes in it, but most of the people in the Bible are not heroes at all. They make some pretty big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away, and at times they're just downright mean. Now, here's the point. Now, the Bible, it's not a book of rules or heroes. The Bible is, first of all, a story. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story, and at the center of the story, there's a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. And it, this, this, this is what this is, right? This, this book is the story of the baby who grew and lived and died rose again and is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is what this book is. And this is what specifically the book of Hebrews has been screaming at us, right? I mean, last Sunday was Easter. And if you, you know, read the Easter accounts, you remember this is what Jesus said in Luke 24 in that Easter account when he's coming to his, his disciples and he says, uh, Luke tells us in Luke 24, he says, uh, Jesus then began to tell them everything that was written about him in the law and the prophets and the Psalms. And Jesus showed them how it was all fulfilled in him. And then it says that he had to open their minds so they could comprehend that. The author of Hebrews, the, the preacher, this is a, a letter but also a sermon that probably he preached to this congregation. That's what he's been trying to tell us, right? It is all about Jesus Jesus is the one who should be supreme in our affections. Jesus is the one who should occupy our thoughts. Jesus is the one for whom our feet should follow to the very end. It's all about Jesus. He's greater than anything else you can imagine, greater than anything else you can comprehend. That's why he opens the book, right? Remember? God, who at various times and various ways spoke in times past, to our fathers by the prophets, has what? In these last days he's spoken to us by son. Whom is what? It's on the thing, right? It's the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of his nature. Through whom he made the world. He's the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels. Then the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And then he goes on to say, he's better than the angels. Chapter 3, he says he's better than Moses, right? Moses worked in the house as a bellhop. Jesus built the house, right? Moses was the steward. Jesus is the son. He's, he's better than Moses. And at the end of chapter 2, he begins to talk about Jesus as being better than 
this whole priesthood thing. Remember chapter 2, I think beginning of verse 14 or so, he says, Inasmuch as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same. Through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that's the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage, because it's not angels he comes to help, but the offspring of Abraham. So he had to be made like us in every way that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest, right? So here we get to chapter 7. And already this guy has kind of dropped this name Melchizedek, right? Like, don't make me go Melchizedek. Don't make me go Melchizedek. Well, he's going Melchizedek on us now. And it seems strange because for us, for us, it's, it's like the most obscure part of the book, right? But for the original audience, the, the author of Hebrews, the divinely inspired author says, man, this is my ace in the hole. I'm going to get to Melchizedek. I'm going to get to Melchizedek. And when I do, all this clarity is going to pop for you. And for us, we're thinking, wow, can we sing a little song? It's not. I don't think it's getting there. What's going on here? What's the author been trying to tell us? He's been trying to tell us, don't give up. Don't give up. Since Jesus is better, keep turning to him. Keep trusting him. Keep treasuring him. That's what faith is, right? And when life's hard, it knocks us down. Man, we keep turning to Jesus, keep trusting him, keep treasuring him. We keep living this life of faith. Because there's a danger, right? Now, that's, that's why this guy is spending so much time, this, this divinely inspired author. That's why he's spending so much time on the priesthood. Starts talking about it in 2. Chapter 5, he talks about it. He has a little digression, kind of warns them in chapter 6. And he comes back at the end of chapter 6. Now, here we go. And for 7 and 8, 9, 10, it's all about priesthood. It's all about sacrifice. It's all about temple. Why is he doing that? Well, you got to remember, Hebrews, like every other sermon, is a situational sermon. That's why, and this is just kind of an aside, and Troy didn't pay me to to say this, but that's why it's so crucial to hear the Word of God preached to us and taught to us by our pastors, our shepherds. You can go online, and you might be able to hear a better sermon than Troy could preach. I don't know, maybe. For your ear. But Troy, Tyler, your other elders... They know your life. They know your heart. And they know how to take God's inspired word and be led by God's spirit to shape it and craft it for the situation you're in. They know how to wield it to, to, to pierce where you're at. So that's just a, an aside. This is a situational sermon. So what's going on with the people in the book of Hebrews? Here's what's going on with them. They are tempted to quit, right? They are tempted to fall back on what is familiar. He's encouraging them, Jesus is better, Jesus is better, consider Jesus, fix your eyes on Jesus, he's better, he's better, he's better, don't quit, don't fall back, keep going, keep turning to him, keep trusting him, keep treasuring him, because they have recently been knocked down. In chapter 12, verse 4, remember he's going to say to them, if you've already read ahead, right, look, guys, keep going, you haven't resisted yet to the shedding of blood. He's like, at least no one's bleeding, right? 
In chapter 10, verse 34, he says, Remember those former days when, when you joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better possession and abiding one? So obviously something had happened. Here's a group of Christians. they got a Jewish background, and they're following after Jesus. They've turned to him. They're trusting him. They're treasuring him. And man, the pressure got turned up in their lives. And a few of them began to say, You know what? We can't have that pressure when we're going to the temple. No one spray painted our home saying, get out of here, Christian, when we're just good Jews doing the good Jew thing, right? When we were trusting in what we knew back then, what is familiar, everything was fine. And although I'm sure no one in this room was tempted this morning to grab a little bit of your cinnamon toast crunch and bring it to Troy because you read in Leviticus, there's a cereal offering you have to make. Now, I'm sure no one was tempted to do that, though I'm sure he would take some CTC any day. You and I both, and here's where we come and sit right next to the people of the book of Hebrews. You and I both are every day tempted to fall back on what is familiar to us. Those B.C. days before Christ, where we ran to, when man, that just made us feel good. Troy mentioned that uh, we've had the opportunity to serve the Lord uh, overseas, and we've had two stints or tours in Africa. Or, uh, got to take my family over there for a few years, uh, most recently a few years ago. But, but as soon as I finished college, and Troy was long in my rearview mirror, the Lord let me go to Zambia in sub-Saharan Africa to serve a couple years there uh, with the Bimba people of northern Zambia. And it was a great experience. But, um, you know, there's a thing, and raise your hand if you've ever lived overseas Amen, right? There's a thing called culture shock, right? That's the feeling you get when you wake up and you say, I hate these people! I mean, it's, you know, it doesn't really bother you that much, but uh, uh, yeah, it's crazy. So you wake up one morning, you're like, if someone will give me a ticket out of here, I will take it, all right? I don't care about mission, I don't care about anything, I don't care about, uh, you know, folks sent me over here, I'm called, whatever, let me get out of here. Well, I remember as a young man, I was having one of those moments, trying to learn this difficult language of Chibimba, couldn't get it. I was supposed to go to this village to uh, do some evangelism stuff. I remember going last time. We had to cajole people to come to the little hut for the service. Like five people showed up. I killed a chicken on the way. A guy in the village got mad. Had to pay him an exorbitant rate. To... I was just fed up. I got to go out to this village. I'm in my little truck. I'm going. And I see uh, as I'm getting out of town, there's a vendor on the side of the road hawking his wares. Usually it's like sunglasses or some other snack or something, a rat on a stick you can eat as you drive or something like that. Well, this day, this guy was hawking some cassette tapes. I said, my truck's got a cassette tape player. So I pulled over. I was like, man, I just want something in English. And I looked over and there was like Totela. Like, if you want to know where to get a cassette tape from Totela, I'll let you know after the service. There's all this Totela and all this other stuff. Found one thing in English, though. It was a Celine Dion tape. <laughs> I bought it. I popped it in, and it was in French. <laughs> it's like French or something. I don't know. But then I turned it over to the other side. It was in English. So, man, I start driving down the road, and ten minutes later, I'm having a Chris Farley, David Spade, Tommy Boy, like 
cry singing to the carpenter song. Like I'm like near far, and I just I'm I'm weeping. And it hits me. I'm like, what am I singing? Like who am I even singing to? And I think like I think what I'm singing like goes against everything in me that I like stand for. Like, but it was familiar. It was familiar. And there is a temptation in all of us to fall back on what is familiar. Let me just briefly say, for those of us in this room, we probably fall into two main big camps, right? Think about Jesus' prodigal uh, uh, story, the story of the two sons. We, we, we probably are tempted in this room to fall back on what is familiar in a prodigal way and in an older brother way. You remember the prodigal? He went and he spent all of his living and, and his familiar point was that of pleasure, Right? So there's probably some of us in this room, man, when the the heat gets turned up, when the world, the flesh, the devil are having their way, there is a strong temptation to say, you know what, there were some places I used to go, there were some people I used to hang with, there were some some practices I used to do, there were some pills or some other substances I used to ingest in my body, these things... Make me feel good. And right now, following the Calvary Road doesn't feel good. And so, I'm going to fall back on that. And there's a temptation for some of us to do that. Others of us, though, maybe we were raised in a different way. We have a church background. And we don't have a temptation to fall back in what we would say a libertarian familiarity. We have a legalistic tendency. We're not falling back on the pleasure. We're falling back on performance. Right? This is the older brother who comes out and says, Look, I've worked this many years for you, and you never give me anything. And that's our temptation, right? When the heat gets turned up, let me just, let me just all right, I'm going to give some more. They're asking for it. I'm going to be a good, good scout. I'm going to do it. I'm going to give some more. Pray some more. Read some more. I'll, I'm going to paint five walls, right? I'll be there. I'll be there before Troy gets there, and I'll be, right, the paint's already on. It's already done. Y'all go home. Like, I'm just going to do more. I have a tendency to fall back on performance. And the author of this book is saying to this obscure guy, Melchizedek, it's not about pleasure, it's not about performance, it's about your position, right? That's what's crucial. It's about your position. And ironically, he's using an unfamiliar text for us to get right to where his audience needs to be. But folks, the Lord wants us here as well. Melchizedek is meant to teach us a lesson on our position in Jesus. Melchizedek is here in Hebrews 7 and the New Covenant talked about in Hebrews 8 to whisper the name of Jesus to every single person in this room, a person tempted to fall back on the familiar. 7, verses 1 through 3. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. Trust me, don't freak out. I know that was a long introduction. And I have a lot of text. That's why we read the whole text. Because we're going to work very quickly. 7, 1 through 3. This is what the author is saying. Look, we're moving from shadow to substance here. Let me show you this shadow figure Melchizedek to get you to the substance of Christ. This Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. So you recall Genesis 14 where the, uh, the battle of five kings versus four, uh, the four kings led by this guy, Ketoloamar, uh, they beat these five kings. They take Lot and, and uh, his people captive. Abraham says, that's my boy. I'm going to go after him. And you read the story in Genesis 14. Abraham sweeps the floor. 
King of Sodom says, hey, you can take the spoils. Abraham says, no, I'm not going to have it said that the king of Sodom makes me rich. But then we get this obscure guy, Melchizedek, coming out with bread and wine. And he blesses Abram. At the time, his name's Abram. Abram gives him a tithe. Right? And notice what the author of Hebrews is saying. Because some, I think, have misread this. And if you're there, that's fine. That's not a big point. But some have said this is a pre-incarnate representation of Jesus. Probably not. Verse 3 says he's resembling the Son of God. The author is not saying Jesus is like Melchizedek. He's saying Melchizedek is like Jesus, right? We're pointing to Jesus here. Jesus is the king priest, right? This Melchizedek guy was the king priest. The only one in all scripture where both of those two offices were linked together until you get to Christ. In fact, and I feel like I don't want to digress too, too much, but if you go to Chronicles and you read the story of Uzziah, you remember Isaiah 6, that great, oh, in the year that King Uzziah died, you know why King Uzziah died? Because God smote him with leprosy. You know why he was smitten with leprosy? Because he was a king trying to be a priest. And God says, no, I will not have those lines, those offices mixed until the king priest comes. And Melchizedek is a prefiguring. He's the shadow. He's, he's king of Salem, probably Jerusalem. That, that means peace and king of righteousness. That's the point the author is making. This priest, Melchizedek, was like Jesus. He was shadowing Jesus. And as such, he is greater than Aaron and Levi. In other words, everything you are tempted to fall back on in your desire for the familiar. He's greater than that. He's greater than that desire to fall back on the familiar. And that's why for the next, the rest of chapter 7, he's, he's showing how this Melchizedek was greater than Aaron and, and Levi. Greater than that priestly line. And it's almost like he lays out the stats. Now, let me just say, I, this is a, I'm about to do an illustration. Is this illustration box? Okay, all right. Illustration, like you can argue this. I'm not being lit. This is illustration. I remember in 2007 sitting in the um, living room of my wife's grandparents' house in Florida, and we were watching the TV, and the TV cameras were on like the, the airport down the road here in Northport. And Mal Moore was walking out on the tarmac to meet this guy coming out of a plane, Nick Saban. And I, I remember thinking, who's Nick Saban? Some guy like Miami, and then he coached the Dolphins or something. Who's Nick Saban, right? And that's what the, the, the people of the author Hebrews, they were like, who's Melchizedek? Like, what are you talking about? There's like six verses in all the Bible about Melchizedek. And now he's going to lay out the stats. So it's like if I were to say, oh, who's Nick Saban? Let's lay out the stats. Now, I know you could say, Paul Bryant's still better or whatever, right? Illustration. But that's what he's doing now. Here's the stats. Here's why Saban's better than Bryant. Here's why Melchizedek is better than Aaron. And here's why you do not need to fall back on what you think is familiar and going to make you feel better. Real quickly, here are the stats. The priesthood of Levi, number one, these are not on the screen, because I think I just wrote them down. Number one, Levi, the priesthood of Levi is not preeminent. Look at verses 4 through 10 of chapter 7. He's not preeminent. See how great this man was to whom Abraham gave a tenth and then he, talk, he goes on to talk about how the descendants of Levi, right? They, they received the tithe, but Abraham's giving the tithe, right? He said, was there like a pecking order? Well, yeah, kind of there is. <laughs> there kind of is in, in, in the Levitical law, right? So he's showing that, hey, 
Melchizedek is preeminent because he received the tithe. Number two, the priesthood of Aaron is not perfect. Look at verse 11 and verse 19. These words are crucial. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? Look at verse 19. He says, the law made nothing perfect. So the Aaron priestly line is not preeminent. It's not perfect. Number three, it's not permanent. Look at verse 23 through 24. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing office. So if you own a business and you're hiring someone for a job, you say, hey, could you come and could you start tomorrow? And do you mind doing this job perfectly? That's all we're asking you to do. Just never mess up. Ever. On anything. And if you don't mind doing it forever, that'd be great. Minimum wage sound good? He's saying, look, priestly line of Aaron, not preeminent, not perfect, not permanent. Number four, not pronounced. That's why all this talk about the oath is so important. Verse 20, this is what he says. It's not without an oath. He's talking about the order of Melchizedek. And he, he's explaining the verse from Psalm 110, which he quotes in verse 17 and verse 21. And the whole point of that is this. He's saying, look. If you want to be a priest from Levi's line, Aaron's line, all you got to do is be born. But God, a thousand years after the obscure, shadowy Melchizedek, a thousand years later in the Psalms, He says, I am making an oath and a promise. There's coming a kingly priest. And He will be in this order of Melchizedek. I'm pronouncing it. Baked into the Levitical law already was its terminus point. It wasn't intended to last forever. The Levitical line, not preeminent, not perfect, not permanent, not pronounced, and not placed. And here's what's crucial. Here's what's crucial. Verse 26. It was indeed fitting. He he said that again already in chapter 2, verse 10. Like, hey, meaning we got a Jesus that meets exactly our needs, right? It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. We won't go into all these descriptors. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. And here's the key. Exalted in the heavens. He's placed. He's placed in the heavens. So the Levitical priesthood, it wasn't preeminent, right? There was something greater. It wasn't perfect, well, I had to do it over and over. It wasn't permanent. These guys died. It wasn't pronounced. God never swears an oath. He's going to keep it going. But it's not placed. The biggest problem with Levitical priesthood is it's here on earth. And we're trying to get back to Eden, right? We're trying to get back to the presence of God. That's what Tyler DeFoy wrote in the devotional for this week. It was a great devotional read. We're trying to get back there to God's presence, and He's in heaven. So we need some priestly work being done in heaven. And that's what Jesus is. Melchizedek is this picture. He's a picture of the permanent, perfect priest whose performance does something for us. It does two things, and trust me, the landing gear is down. (laughs) We're about to end it. Melchizedek's a picture of the permanent, perfect priest whose performance does two things. First of all, it secures the pardon of God for us. Jesus' high priestly ministry, Jesus is in the heavens. And verse 23 says this in chapter 7, 
Excuse me, verse 24. He holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. And then verse 25, consequently, that's the big therefore. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is our high priest in the heavens, securing our pardon because he is always interceding for us. He said, well, does that mean that Jesus is always like, oh, 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 please, God, please, God, you know, don't smite him. Oh, God, don't smite him. Oh, God, don't smite him. I really need to vacuum the, the, the mansion over here, but i got to keep praying. God, don't smite him. No, 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 that's not what he's saying. He's saying the very exalted, seated, crucified, yet risen Christ himself. In his seated office, in his very person, his presence in heaven, is a continual securing of our pardon. That's why we don't talk about our salvation merely in past tense. Yes, I was saved at a VBS when I was 12. That's why we talk about I was saved from sin's penalty. One day I will be saved from its presence, but right now I am being saved from its power because Christ is continually upholding me through His intercession before the Father. Zechariah 3, that's your homework tonight, right? It's a beautiful picture of Joshua, the high priest, representing Israel. And there he is, filthy before the Lord. And Satan, the accuser, is accusing him before the Lord. And he is filthy. He should be accused. But what happens? Jesus stands up and says, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? That's all of us. In Christ, our pardon is secure. But secondly, Jesus, the high priest in heaven, is securing the pardon of God, but he's also enabling the presence of God. He's interceding for us, but he's also sanctifying us. And that's what chapter 8 really is all about with this new covenant. See, Jesus stands as the high priest. And he says, look at my, my nail prints, the prints on my side. Remember Calvary, how I rose triumphant, uh, triumphant over the grave. Look at that. Pardon my people. It, it, it's done, right? Paid in full to Telestai. I have made purification for sins. My people's sins are pardoned. But then, just as he told Peter in Luke 22, Simon, Satan has asked for you to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that you may not fall And when you come back, strengthen your brothers. He's not only securing our pardon, he is enabling the presence of God in our lives as a living, active dynamic. That's what the new covenant's all about, right? And so you get to chapter 8, verse 8, and there begins the longest Old Testament quotation in the New Testament. And it's basically ripped from Jeremiah 31 about the promise of the new covenant that is based on the forgiveness of sins, where God says, I will be merciful Toward their iniquities, verse 12. I will remember their sins no more. But what does it accomplish? Here's what it accomplishes. It enables the great I am himself to be the great I am in his people. Isn't that amazing? This book is dealing with the great I am. At creation, and it's going to be on the screen God is the great I am bringing this world into order. 
At Christmas, what happens? God, the great I am, becomes the great I am with. And the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. At Good Friday, what happens? It looks like he becomes the great I am not. It looks like death has had its way. But on Easter, what happens? He's the great I am back, right? And now, Hebrews is saying, using this obscure guy, Melchizedek, now he's the true priest, the true sacrifice, the true temple. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you. He is the great I am in heaven, securing your pardon. And he's the great I am in you, enabling the presence of God, enabling God's laws to be written on your mind and on your heart. He's in heaven securing our pardon. He's in us enabling our progress. That's why Paul will say in Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I. Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't set aside God's grace. For if righteousness could come by any other way, this whole thing's bogus. So don't fall back on what is familiar. Look at the last verse, 8.13. What is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Men, how many of you in this room got that one shirt that your wife is like, come on. You still going to wear that? Got holes in it, oil stains. Stings, it's falling apart. You just need to get a new one. But this is familiar. I like this one. I remember that ketchup stain right there. It was at a Braves game when they, 1992, Sid Bream did the deal. And the author of Hebrews is saying, Don't fall back on what is familiar. Press forward into the great I am in faith. Not pleasure, not position, but performance. Not performance, but position. You know, this is the week after Easter. I joked about historically this is the least attended Sunday service. Well, you you think about the first week after Easter? Ever think about that one? It was, it was reversed. The first Easter, there was a guy missing. His name was Thomas. The week after Easter, he was there because he heard something. He said, hey, he's alive again. And you know the story of what happened on that first week after Easter. Jesus appears to him. and says, look, look, Thomas. Look at the prints in my hands and my side. Don't be disbelieving, but believe. And you remember the response? Here's a response I pray that all of us will have as our worship team comes up. He falls down to his knees and says, My Lord and my God, you're the great I am. And you're here in my presence. Let's pray together. Father, that's our desire, even as we continue in worship, that we would press deeper into you. As you have revealed yourself to us in your Son, the great I Am, who's the great I Am in, interceding for us there in heaven, but indwelling us now by your Spirit. And so, Lord, would you come and would you continue, Lord, to draw us near.
so that we would draw near to you. We would obey your summonings. would come near to you in faith and worship. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we worship.